Welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit podcast. I'm Jim Hemphill. I write about filmmaking craft for IndieWire. My guest today is Eli Roth, whose new film Thanksgiving is the most deliriously entertaining horror movie since Wes Craven's original Scream. A feature-length expansion of the fake trailer Roth created for Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez's Grindhouse, Thanksgiving is the director's love letter to the low-budget slasher films of the 70s and early 80s. Films like Black Christmas, My Bloody Valentine, Prom Night, Terror Train, and Silent Night, Deadly Night. Roth follows the fairly rigorous template established in those films, but makes it his own. He delivers the satisfactions of the movies that inspired him without being a slave to them. The impeccable comic timing of his actors, the visual elegance of his camera movements and compositions, and the boldness of his set pieces make Thanksgiving that rare homage that's actually better than any of the movies that inspired it. Okay, maybe it's not better than John Carpenter's Halloween, but it's close. I'm really excited to have Eli Roth in the studio to talk about his process. So, welcome, Eli. Thanks, Jim. That's quite an intro. I could use any of those as a quote on the poster. <laughs> like, it's not better than Halloween, but it's close. Um, but to say the best one since Scream, I really appreciate it. Also, I know you're such a student and fan of the genre. It really means a lot to me that you felt that way. Yeah, it really just, uh, it really brought me back to, it, I, you know, I told you earlier, it, it brought me back to the way I felt as a kid discovering these kinds of movies. Um, I just thought it was so much fun. And I'm curious, I guess going back to the origins of it, when you made the Thanksgiving trailer, did you have a story mapped out for all that? So you had to, or did you have to reverse engineer everything to make this movie? Well, what was crazy was Jeff Rendell, who wrote the script and who's, you know, been my best friend since kindergarten. Um, we grew up in Massachusetts. So we were always like, we grew up in the hate, the heyday of those 80s slasher movies where it started with, you know, Halloween and Black Christmas and My Bloody Valentine and New Year's Evil and Prom Night and Happy Birthday to Me and April Fool's Day, Mother's Day, Father's Day, Silent Night, Deadly Night. And the most glaring hole to us was Thanksgiving because in Massachusetts, Thanksgiving is a massive, massive deal. I mean, there's two separate pilgrim recreation villages you go to with your school groups. There's a school play about Thanksgiving, which one of which I did when I was eight years old, and I actually took over the direction of the play as a little, <laughs> little bossy boots, um, <laughs> little eight-year-old kid. Um, but then there's the parade. So it's, it's everything. So we're like, how could no one do this? So we started thinking of deaths. We're like, well, what if there was a parade and there's a guy dressed like a turkey and you decapitate him? He runs around like a turkey with his head cut off. And what if someone gets roasted in an oven like a turkey and has little chef's hats on their fingers and toes? So when Grindhouse came around and Quentin and Robert were like, hey, do you want to do a fake trailer? I was like, I, I got it. I already know what it is. It's Thanksgiving. We had all the deaths, but we had no plot. So it was a pleasure to shoot that trailer, which we did just tacking on two days to the end of Hostel 2. We just kept the crew. We got cameras from Panavision Prague from 1980, like old 1980 lenses. So it all looked authentic to the period. We lit it like Mother's Day or Silent Night, Deadly Night. We looked at the lighting in those films and said, if we had no money, we'd have one light source here and this would be falling off into black. And then, you know, shooting Super 35 to really give it that that feel. And it was a pleasure, but it almost trapped us because after we made the trailer, Jeff and I thought, well, great, we're done. We don't have to make the movie now because we shot the best parts. And then it was just years and years of people saying, well, when are you going to turn it into a movie? And we thought, well, there's no story. It was just a series of crazy deaths we had in our head. Um, and trying to write it, we just were like writing filler or connector between those scenes. So we thought, you know what, we got to throw that out and go back to our original conception, which was always to make a real slasher film. You know, in the 90s, I saw Mute Witness, and I was like, fuck, I want to do that. And then Scream, of course, you're like, oh, my God, this is like... I remember when I was trying to get Cabin Fever made it, like the studio went out as a spec script, 
And my agent said, well, this just sold to Miramax for half a million dollars last week. And I read it and I was like, oh, this is a professional movie. <laughs> this is a real screenplay. And it was called Scary Movie at the time. I'm like, oh, my God, I've never read anything like, this is so well-written. My thing is just like a student film compared to this. So, you know, the goal was always to make a real slasher film. And once once we sort of saw those uh, Black Friday trampling videos, those viral videos that came out, we thought, that's it. That's our, not only is it our inciting incident, but it gives the movie a real theme, which is this Christmas Black Friday shopping bleeding over into this holiday about being thankful um, which seems more relevant than ever now because starting November 1st, my phone began blowing up with these spam texts of Black Friday sale, Black Friday sale. There is no Thanksgiving anymore. We're going right from Halloween into Black Friday. It's like the, the holiday's been completely erased by these Christmas sales. So I think once you can lock into a theme, it sort of unlocks you creatively in what the movie can be about. Well, and it's interesting you talking about how for the trailer, you kind of did replicate the look of those movies. And for this, it's kind of interesting because it's – you know, the the premise is similar to all those movies from the 70s and the 80s, but the look, and there's certain aspects of it where you're kind of calling back to the look of those movies, but it's much more visually elegant than something like Prom Night or, you know, uh, Terror Train, something like that. So for you, like, what were the guiding principles for the visual style of this movie? Well, Milan Khadamo is my DP on Hostel and Hostel 2 and the fake trailer, and those are beautiful-looking films. Like, people watched Hostel, and it didn't look like a horror movie. It had a very European look to it. The first 45 minutes very much like a sex comedy, like Last American Virgin or Porky's. So I like sort of deceiving the audience. You know, we, we use the language, the cinematic language of a slasher film. I open with a point-of-view shot of a house with the identifying title of where you are and what the night is. Like, The Prowler does that. Obviously, Halloween does that. Town the Dreaded Sundown. There are a lot of films that start with this is where we are and this is the night and you're going to start with whatever that inciting incident is. But there are other influences that get in there too. Like I showed him Toby Dammit, which is one of my favorite, you know, Luciano, uh, Tonino Rotano shot. It's one of those beautifully shot films of all time. But then when we're looking at the diner, I don't want it to feel like a Riverdale diner. I think that works very well for that. We watch Five Easy Pieces. I said, look at this beautiful Laszlo Kovacs photography. Look at the colors. These are fall colors. Look at the oranges. Look at the rich, lush look. look let's look at A Christmas Story and make that you know demented dinner scene not a horror movie, but we're in a holiday movie that just turns very sick and perverse. The movie is about the perversion of the holiday. And so the movie has to look like a holiday movie that gets perverted by the killings. So other films that we, we watched, you know, I the actors were like, what should we watch? Watch horror films. Well, I had Nell Verlack, our lead, who I think is a fantastic new actor. I mean, she's like a young Julia Roberts. She's uh, an incredible theater actor out of New York. Her father's an actor, like teach, teaches acting. So real serious actor. Um, I had Nell watch Mute Witness because I love the performance of the Russian girl, the lead girl in that movie. But I had the guys, they all watch Sorcerer. I was like, look what they went through in this movie. And look how great. I didn't want anyone complaining on set. I said, watch Sorcerer. And the girls, I said, watch Betty Blue. Watch Beatrice Dahl's performance in that. She was 21. You're 22. What's your excuse? Like, that's the level I expect from this movie. And then visually, Diva, Baynex's film, you know, I said, like, there's no minor characters in that movie. Every time you meet someone new, I really think that Diva is kind of the birth of modern cinema. Like, all modern movies I think you can trace back to Diva, where there's no, you look at True Romance, look at the kind of the Coen brothers or Terry Gilliam, like there, there's just a, Bassan's films, suddenly cinema changed. I didn't think foreign films could be that cool. Um, so Diva, to me, is is the one. That's like one of those those sources. So Diva, Toby Dammit, Five Easy Pieces, 
Mute Witness. There's other films that are in there. Christmas Story, Porky's, Bob Clark. I mean, this guy starts three subgenres. The POV, the holiday slasher film, Black Christmas, the sex comedy with Por- Porky's, and then changes the family holiday movie with Christmas Story. So Porky's is a beautifully shot film. I mean, it always sort of gets dismissed as a stupid movie, but there's no ac- it's no accident that movie was a phenomenon. And if you rewatch it, you look at all the characterizations, the themes of anti-Semitism, there's so about bigotry, there's so much incredible, incredible stuff in Porky's, but it sort of gets relegated to being like a joke, but it's really not. So the high school, you know, Jeff Rendell, when we were making the movie, we we're like, wow, we actually have like a cop movie, you know, Dario Argento, Jallo stuff with a straight razor. Like we have we're making a cop movie, we're making a high school movie, we're making a holiday movie, and we're making a slasher movie. At a certain point in the editing room, I had to pick one. But that was the fun, was not just saying, oh, it's a horror movie, it's got to look like this. It's doing all those homages and the POVs and the teenage girl alone in her house and hearing the creepy sound and then dad and then just like getting no answer and creeping it. Like finding all those jump scares and the final girl being chased by the mass killer through the empty halls of the high school. I love that stuff. Um, And it was a pleasure. It was like a true joy to get to do it. Um, Because for me, the slasher films really are the purest form of cinema. I mean, it's cat and mouse, stalking, chasing. There's a whole sequence where there's no dialogue. It's just a girl being stalked by the killer with a pitchfork that, to me... Is the, is the best of what these movies can offer when it's just this pure cinematic experience without characters sitting and talking and explaining what's going to happen next, but you're just caught up in the tension of just watching this you know, beautiful visual imagery. And it should look lush, and it should look beautiful. And, and that's Peter Mahaychuk, my production designer. We wanted every location to be rich and textured and filled and no white walls, no blank walls. Like, there's no excuse for that. So... That's how you take a low-budget movie and you make it look big-budget, is you really fill your frame. That's something I really learned from David Lynch and Quentin Tarantino and using art direction and costume to express character. And Leslie Cavanaugh, my costume designer, is so creative and so smart and does stuff so well on a low budget. So we, we really just just went for it in every in every department to, to create a world. Yeah, well, and hearing you talk about all the different influences and how many influences were not from the world of horror, I mean, again, thinking about, like, you know, you're probably one of the few people who's made a movie that's influenced by both Five Easy Pieces and Porky's and Toby Dammit. I mean, and, yeah. and that all kind of speaks, though, I think, to what I loved about the movie, which was it was this, you know, to use a bad pun because it's Thanksgiving, it was, it was a really full meal, and it felt like it was a movie by a guy. You know, I always think there's that Truffaut quote, where he says that, you know, he, he wants any movie to express either the joy of making cinema or the agony of making cinema. And I feel like this movie just so expresses the joy of making cinema. I mean, I just felt like your pleasure was so infectious at, at every point. And I, I really, really responded to that. You know, something else I really liked about it, and I think this is really, really hard, is you managed to come up with a really cool, scary, interesting, distinctive killer. And, you know, I think that's always a big challenge with these is how do you come up with a new Michael Myers or a new Jason or a new, you know, Scream mask or whatever. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how much trial and error there was just arriving at this character of the Carver. John, John Carver. Carver. You know. Yeah, well, it's it's funny because when Jeff and I had this in our heads, it was always the Pilgrim. We always called the killer the Pilgrim. And when we shot the fake trailer, Jeff played the Pilgrim. 
So we're all like he was acting in it, dressed in the costume. So we we liked that look. We liked you know the axe, the jumpsuit. I remember he tried on this black like SWAT suit, and he's like, "Man, this is an outfit made just for killing people." We were so, and we found some very kind of bespoke axes that we thought worked really well in the hatchet that we used in the trailer, and you know like stabbing the turkey, all that stuff with the gloves. It was so, it was so much fun. So we knew we had that basic shape and silhouette. But there was a real challenge when you tell everyone you're going to make this scary movie and everyone's like, well, what's the mask? And in the story, the mask isn't supposed to be scary. It's just scary by context. And that was very difficult to explain to the studio because they're looking at pictures going, well, this isn't scary enough. And you say, well, and I shouldn't say it's everyone at the studio, it's some people at the studio. Um, And I'd say, well, the whole point in the movie is that this mask was made for the 400-year anniversary of the foundation of Plymouth. And it was made after John Carver, who was the first governor of New Plymouth Colony. Now that is real. Jeff, in doing the research for the script, found that there was tunnels under Plymouth and Cordish Park, all these different things that we didn't know. And he's like, you know, the, the first governor and the governor on the Mayflower was named John Carver. Like, if that's not God handing you a slasher movie name, I don't know what is. So, of course, we took it and ran with it. And then thinking about the mask, we're like, what would it be? We're like, well, let's look for any imagery of John Carver. And there's one drawing of him that we were able to find from 1620. And we thought this could be a good basis for the mask because it feels like something that was would be given out for a 400-year anniversary parade, but 2020 was COVID. So the parade was canceled. So they have all these extra masks lying around. They just, you know, can't give them away, but they're everywhere. So that's the idea is that they have all these leftover masks from the 2020 parade that there's just stacks of them and everybody in town wears them. Uh, because it was for the Quater Centenary, another word I learned, along with bowsprit, the pointy part at the end of a boat. So that, once we, we had it, you know, Peter Mahaychuk and I we, and our costume designer, Leslie Cavanaugh and Jeff, we, we looked at different variations. We designed the mask uh, with an artist named Viper, who actually worked on Hemlock Groves, an amazing graphic artist, um, part of the art department. And we looked at the imagery and Viper turned it into a 3D mask. We 3D printed a bunch. And then we tried like the super scary, and and for us it had to be terrifying in a, when it's in the wrong context. You know, if you see someone wearing the mask, it's weird. It's a little weird, but when you see them standing in your kitchen with an axe with a hat on, then it's terrifying. That's what makes it really scary, and that anybody could have it, and that they're everywhere. So once we had the look, you know, it took about five or six tries on the mask, and you know, we're getting closer to shooting. I mean, it came down to the first day of principal photography, we're like, we have to establish the mask today. And is it too pale? Is it golden enough? Is it going to work? But, you know, once we put it on and you saw him running around with the axe, we we just went for it. And how important is figuring out the body movement of the, the killer? Because, you know, I always think about the original Halloween and how when you didn't have Nick Castle after that movie playing Michael Myers, it just didn't work the same way. There's something about Nick Castle's elegance as Michael Myers and the way he moved that made that killer scary that you didn't get as much in the sequels. And how tricky is that? Just And, and well, and here's another question about the killer is, I'm not going to give away who the killer is, but is the actor, when you've got the killer chasing people, is that actually the actor or is that a double or a stuntman or something like that? Well, this was a big consideration. I'm glad you asked it. And another movie that I love, it's vastly underrated, that's finding its audience now is Friedkin's Cruising. And he uses different voices for the killer calling and different actors playing the killer. So you could never identify the body language. 
Um, and actually, Vincent Gallo hosted a screening with Al Pacino on 35 at the New Beverly of Cruising that I went to. I'm a huge fan of that movie. And uh, it really, it's such a great kind of American Jallo film. I mean, it really is shot like an Argento Jallo. It's a beautiful movie. But it really keeps you guessing as to who the killer is, you know, still to this day often. So I thought, well, why don't we have multiple people play the killer? So everybody gets a chance to do it because I'm watching the body language, the hair. Okay, so they put a balaclava on, the glass, but the way they move, the height, the size, we just kept it similar enough but different enough that you couldn't really tell who it was. So sometimes it's the actor who's the killer and other times it's another actor who's not the killer, but that way everybody got a chance to do it. We had the basic movement. It can't be a completely different person playing. This is the body language of John Carver. This is how John Carver walks this is how they swing an axe this is how they turn their head but you think about the you know the nick castle headcock the way he does it and i also thought about you know kane hodder in the friday the 13th movies you know jason doesn't really become jason until part three you know he's the kid in the lake it's the mom in part one his baghead in part two but between two and three, as Edgar Wright says, he went to the slasher gym and just gets <laughs> yoked. And he's a 400-pound WWE wrestler. He's like a beast. And But he doesn't get the hockey mask until part three. Halfway through, he kills sort of a, an opportunity. He just puts it on. Now you can't think of Jason without that hockey mask. But the mask is what makes him Jason, makes him iconic. So I thought, like, okay, we're going to have the mask, but... There are certain people you can see how they're playing the actor and certain movements that make it terrifying. And, and now I would say, okay, take all the emotion out of it. Like, like do this like a robot. Like, and then there's a scene where you know Kathleen is being prepped on the table that I brought in a sous chef because I was like, and his movements were like the way he threw the salt, the way he placed the parsley in between the toes. It was amazing. It was so elegant. I was like, oh, this is someone really preparing a meal. I was like, just pretend we're not in a horror movie. You're making a festive meal. And he just like the way he cracked the pepper and painted the olive oil. I was like, this is exactly what I want. It's the someone like kind of fetishizing, getting somebody ready to roast them in an oven. It's so perverse. And that's what the essence of the movie is. It's taking all these things we love about the holiday and just twisting them on their ear. You mentioned the cast. And I did, again, another thing I really loved about the movies, I thought performances from just across the board were great. And, you know, you're working with a lot of actors here who, like you say, are younger, maybe not as experienced. Like, you know you're going to get something great from Patrick Dempsey or, you know, whoever. Rick Hoffman, yeah. Yeah, Rick Hoffman. Exactly. Uh, But working with young actors, first of all, just in terms of the casting, what's the audition process like and how do you kind of safeguard – I mean, I know you can never know 100%, but how do you sort of safeguard yourself knowing that – they're going to be able to deliver what you want and what kind of environment do you try to create on set to facilitate those young actors best work? I mean, that's a great question. I always say making movies really is a faith-based system. You just have to hope to God it all works out and one person can sink the ship in a movie like this. So with the suspects, they had to be roughly similar in size. And then sometimes an actor would come in like Jacob, the nerd who's doing the math homework, that character, he was going to be a suspect but this kid came in named Jordan Poole, who was so funny. He, he was like a young Steve Buscemi. And he's five feet. T- and we're like, okay, 
he's so good that like let's just give up the idea that this guy is a red herring and just have a fun character. And he sort of became McCarty's mini me, you know, dressing like McCarty and sort of doing McCarty's bidding because he wants to be accepted by the cool kids. Fantastic, fantastic young actor. Everything has to be, you know, you need your final girl. And I didn't really know who that was going to be until Nell Verlack auditioned, and it was really just from her, from her self tape. You know, it was and it was Jeff Randell who found it. I'd been going through maybe three hundred tapes that day. I'm like, I can't find anyone. Jeff's like, let me go through them again tonight. And he's like, what about Nell Verlack? She's everything we want. I watched. It, I was like, yeah, I totally missed this. And that's sort of the bad thing about self tapes. I would, I would much rather have people audition in person. And come in. It's it's you know the only way to really see right away. I can usually tell just by meeting them if they're going to be great, and I'll have them audition. You know the screaming, the terror stuff. It's like if you can act, I know you can do that. You can never replicate that in an audition. But for me, you don't really know until they're all together, and you just have to have an instinct and a sense. Now I just came from acting in an ensemble on The Idol, so I was there with Divine Joy Randolph and Hank Azaria and Jane Adams and Abel the weekend. And Lily, uh, it, it was the most, Moses Sumney, Troy Savant, it was the most incredible group of actors. Everybody loved being there. It was the greatest set to be on. We were constantly laughing, and everybody was making each other look good, and everybody wanted the other person to shine. So no one was like, oh, I got to get this joke. Everyone would yell, cut, and laugh, like, that was so fun. Oh, do that, I'll set you up for this. Like, everybody wanted everybody to be great. And I've been on set when it's like that, and I've been on set when it's not, and it's a nightmare. And so... I said to everyone, I was like, nobody's getting paid shit for this. Like, you're in this because we're getting, we're gonna, we're gonna make a classic. I want it to be like Hostile One. Like, everyone is there to have a great time, but to really prove themselves. And and this is the role that you know. There's no small parts. There's only small actors. Any actor can make a small role sing. So you never forget it. You feel like they're the star of the movie. But I sat down with all the actors and even like, you know, with Addison Ray. Addison is like known for TikTok, obviously, but I'm not on TikTok. So I was just judging her on her acting. And she's like, you know, obviously had a, I think a difficult experience on her first film or something that just didn't turn out the way they had hoped. And she's really just worked hard to show her range. She's like, I'm coming in the movie. I want to be a supporting role, but I really want to show everyone what I can do. And she's incredible in the film. But before we start, I was like, you and Nell Verlack have to become best friends. And they did. And then we sit down with everyone, and I was like, look, the only way this movie works, if we're going to have Scream, the reason Scream is great is because the characters are so good, and the actors are so good, and we like them. I want you two to feel like you're a couple. You guys have you guys have to be best friends for years on the football team. Like That's what's going to make it painful when people start dying, is we have to believe these are all real friends. So from the first rehearsal, they all started hanging out. They all became friends with each other. They started an Instagram account, all will be carved, of just them, you know, fucking around. And and Addison, you know, obviously is a beast on social media, was so generous. Like she was making TikToks with the group and tagging everyone. She's like, I want everyone. This isn't like I'm the star. This is all of us together. So she was so generous. And obviously her level of fame is so vastly different from few others in the planet. And you'd never know. Like she's on set without her cell phone. She was so professional, but also really made everybody feel good. Like we're all part of this thing. Nell Verlack is such a good actor. She's so, so good and so serious, so real. And Tommaso Sinelli had been an actor since he was a kid in Canada. And so, like, the two of them are incredible. And then you have Jenna Warren, who's done most, a lot of voiceover stuff, and My Little Pony, and Gabriel Davenport, who's a new face, is incredible. Like, you just put them all together, and then Milo kind of 
came in from shooting his journey from Bethlehem and fit right in with the group. And Jalen Thomas Brooks, like everybody, when they weren't shooting, they wanted to be on set. And one of the ways I fostered that was I gave everyone like 1999 video cameras, like Sony, like, or whatever, the mini DV handy cams. So that I wanted the video diary of the movie to look like it was Blair Witch. I wanted it shot on videotape and they loved it. They love anything analog. They don't want to shoot stuff on their phones. They want to have that camera in their hand with a blown out exposure and autofocus shifting. and So I wanted the video diary. I said, if you're not on set and you're not shooting, you can come and shoot the behind the scenes. You're allowed on set. This isn't like a closed set. Obviously, if it's an intense scene, we might ask you to hang back, but everybody was showing up when they weren't shooting and they were filming. And so we always had batteries, tape, chargers, so they could always just turn in a tape. We kept the tapes so that we could screen it, make sure nothing got out there in case anyone did something stupid. Um, but it, it really gave everyone this feeling of, I was like, what I can offer you is the experience of a lifetime Memories you'll never forget and a real chance to learn. Like everyone is going to shine in the movie. So when we're doing the party scene at McCarty's house, even though, you know, Evan, Tommaso, Sinelli's not in it or gave, like anyone that wasn't in the scene still showed up to hang out at the party. And, you know, you turn around and they're like doing keg stands and joking and making videos and having fun. So that was the vibe on set. You know, if someone had a death scene or a big scene, everyone was there to cheer them on. Everybody, you know, I remember the last night of shooting, we were shooting in the house with Yulia and Scuba and Je and like like three actors. The last night I went down kind of into the green, this green room at this person's house. It was their basement. And there were like 20 kids in there and they're playing guitar and hanging out. But I was like, what are you guys all doing here? Like, we didn't want to miss it. We didn't, And I'm asking the actor, I'm like, is it distracting? Like, no, 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 we love it. So part of it was that gr great experience that it sort of felt like overnight camp. And then you have the veterans where it's like me and Patrick and Rick Hoffman and Gina and we're looking around going, God damn, we haven't had this fun in 30 years, this much fun in 30 years. Like these 20 year old kids are like reminding us of what it is like when you're first on a set, bonding with your cast, having that first great experience. And it was just infectious. You know, we were shooting this riot scene. I mean, it took all of my years of skill of directing to nail that scene in four nights. We're outside for two nights, inside for two nights. And the whole movie shot in 35 days. It was a very fast, low budget shoot. But still with the scale and the scope of, you know, a scream. That was what I wanted. So, you know, when when we're at this superstore scene where we're shooting all night, you're there with Tim Dillon, Gina Gersh, and Rick Hall. Like, everyone's there, and we were having... Everyone's hanging out. Everyone's having fun. And the young actors are looking to the older actors going, like, how did you do it? And the girls are looking at Gina going, oh, my God, she is goals. She's so gorgeous. She's so cool. She's done it all. She's an icon. And Gina's like, these kids are so fun. Everyone is so nice. We're all like having a good time. It was like an amazing, there was no division. Like nobody was hanging out in base camp at their trailers going, call me when set's ready. Like nobody wanted to miss anything. Everybody was so busy having fun. And then you turn around and they're doing like ridiculous TikToks and stuff. They just were, and that was the experience I wanted. And I think that translates when you watch the movie, there's something infectious about it. They're so funny. They're so lively. So when we're shooting, we're just capturing that. You're not going, okay, yes, we'll get the scenes, the lines the way we need, but I could also just like let the camera roll, which is something Sam Levinson did, where he just would like let the camera roll and let you riff. And sometimes you're just babbling and other times you just come up with these great moments. Yeah, I mean, I can definitely testify that it comes across to the audience and gives a similar experience because, you know, the cool thing for me watching the movie is it felt to me like it was a movie 
in in one sense, it felt like a movie by a young guy. Like it felt like you were cool. re-experiencing that kind of passion that you might have had when you made Cabin Fever or something, but with the skill of a guy who's made a bunch of these, you know. And and I thought that combination is really, I mean, much again going back to Scream, much like Scream. It's like you've got Wes Craven. By that point, he had made a lot of horror movies. He knew how to do it. But there was something about Kevin Williamson's script and those actors that clearly like rejuvenated him. And and, yes. made, and it again felt like a young man. He movie. feels like an engaged filmmaker. Yeah. And that was what was so inspiring and so much fun to me about Thanksgiving. And you mentioned that uh, the scene in the store, the Black Friday scene that opens the movie. And that is such a sort of classic set piece. And talk a little bit about conceptualizing and executing that. And I mean, how do you what what are the keys to pulling something like that off in four days? You know, that that Black Friday sequence has to be the showstopper. Like you're opening the movie with a scene where the bar is so high, the audience goes, oh, fuck. He's going for it. This is no bullshit. We just got our money's worth in the first 10 minutes. What else is going to happen? And then you just keep delivering and raising the bar and raising the bar right up through the end, hopefully. But the idea with that opening was I wanted the most spectacular sequence I've ever done. I want to top the plane crash in Green Inferno or the eyeball in Hostel, whatever it is. I wanted that scene for people to just go, fuck me. This movie means business. And it's going for the throat, and it's not going to let you go until the end of the film. So to do that, obviously my DP, Milan, and I, we, we sat down. We shot listed out. We go, you, you do it mathematically. You go, okay, we have four nights to do it. How many hours? Okay, the drive time this. Okay, we're going to do outside. Okay, I need to get them out of the car. I can do two shots here, and then we can do the steady cam going here. We're looking in this. We shoot directionally because it's too long to relight. So shooting towards the store for this, that. If I can get them inside the store so that we're just crashing the door at the beginning of night three, then I can do the trampling on night three. And then on night four, we can do the individual details. Okay, here's the moment of Bobby and Jessica. Now we're doing Evan's coverage. I can do it because I want it to be an intimate scene where you're really following everything that's happening. And we've, you know, really two nights for chaos. So it's, it's a lot. The way you do it is you break it down. We do our shot list. I can do some storyboards, have a storyboard artist, kind of work it out. But we go to the location, and uh, one of the keys is I worked with a uh, director named Justin Harding on my show, The Haunted Museum in Urban Legend. Amazing director out of, uh, out of Canada, out of Toronto. And Justin's episode of The Haunted Museum was so precise and so scary. He did this episode called The Dollhouse. I was like, how do you do it? How are you nailing these shots? In How are you getting this episode in five days? Like, what's your... What's your trick? Because it's so clean and it's so well done. And he's like, well, I use Frameforge. And I was like, what's, I had never used Frameforge. He's like, I'm so fast at it. He can walk in a room and build it in five minutes in Frameforge. He could sit down in this room. He, he just measures. He gets the exact dimensions of the walls. He puts the props in. He puts the stand-ins for people. He can build it, I swear to God, in five minutes. He'll have the room built. Once the room is built virtually... You put in your camera package. Okay, we're using the Airy. We're using these Japanese lenses. That is the Panavision. Like he puts it in exactly, and then you can start framing it out. You can put in a move. You can put in a shot. He can do it. So we can start to look at the film virtually. So we go. Okay, this is where the store goes. Now, what if we try the barricade here? This is the first thing. Okay, now we're going to have this kind of antechamber where everyone fills up. You know, we're shooting in this location, so you're kind of confined to what the location is. All right. Well, they all fill up like a fishbowl. Now the glass cracks and it goes up this way. So Justin builds the building. He builds the barricades. We put the crowd of people and we just start walking it through. We go, okay, the car will park here. Then they walk here. You know, you go to the location with him. 
And me and Justin sit there and Milan and Jeff, the writer, and we're like, okay, then if they go here, they're here. I go, okay, where should we put the three cash registers? Let's put the three registers here. Then they can crash in and then we're going to have Evan stand up and he's kind of getting the vantage point from here. Like you just build it virtually and we start to kind of work it out. And so Justin, I started this, you know, we, we, we had it later in the shoot. So it was a, I think a five week shoot or six weeks. So like, you know, by like week three or four, we're doing it. But Justin in prep is kind of starting that. He's also shooting splinter unit and kind of second unit stuff for me. But we did that with the scene with Kathleen with the pitchfork. Like we went to the location, we went to the barn, we built it out. And then we just, and I have my shot list and I can pencil sketch or storyboards. And then Justin kind of sits there and over the weekend, he'll frame forge it out. And then even though we don't do like full animation, we go, oh, we can start to edit it. We can cut it. I can send that to my editor. Uh, two editors, amazing, Michelle Conroy and Michelle Aller, and one will cut one sequence, one's cutting another, or if Michelle's like working on the this sequence, you know, Michelle Aller can go, okay, let me cut the previs that we have, just to see, just like, I, we could probably add a close-up here, oh, it'd be good, you know, we're kind of repeating this shot, you know, it'd be a little more dynamic, we could put a move, and we just start to work it that way, so that when you get on set, it's pure execution. If you don't know what, if you don't have a plan, your scene is fucked. You go into every scene on a budget like this with a real fucking serious plan. That's even the dialogue scene, even if it's basic. You go to that set the day before, the night before, you walk through it, and you have your shot list, and you break it down. Okay, call time's at 7, actors ready at 7.45, camera's up at 8.30. We're starting with this shot, and then I'm going to go to the two shot and the close-up. I need to be out of this by 11.30 in order to because we're breaking for lunch at one, like well, I want to be in the next lighting setup. You have to be so economic. Now, a lot of this, I believe in the Malcolm Gladwell, the 10,000 hours theory of attaining mastery. And I think, you know, it's it's like eight hours a day concentrated for for 10 years. And I'm now at 20 years of directing. And obviously that's not all concentrated on directing, but I do have a certain amount of mastery and experience. Like the first time you're driving, you're like, whoa, I got to put on my blinker. Is this car going to move? How do I get... And now you're like on your phone, you're doing 30 other things while you're driving. It's just second nature. And that's what, you know, directing, you have to be so focused and so concentrated, but the things that you, that took up a lot of energy do become second nature to you. And with Milan, we really do have a shorthand. We know how long it's going to take to light a scene. We know, I know how many takes I'm going to need. I know how much like time I want to let the ex actors do extra stuff but you know when you have Karen Cleish who plays Kathleen and Rick Hoffman and Nelver Lack they're fucking ready they're great every take there's no bad takes they might fumble a line or miss a moment or want to do it better but they're so ready to go and you need people like that because it's the only way your scene's going to be good so I think that shot listing storyboarding and then you know Justin showed me frame forge and he's just practiced on it and learned how to do it you can go in those environments and virtually shot list. And we kind of, Milan and I will kind of shoot the scene virtually before we go in to shoot it. I mean, we walk around the location and we discuss it. We discuss the beach. Oh yeah, then grab the pitchfork. And what if he comes out there and she's hiding behind the door and he's right there in the center of the room. And then she has to get to the stairs without him noticing and creaks the door and he turns around. So we can kind of shoot it. We'll shoot it with our iPhones, take photos. But you're really walking through and figuring that out, you know, a week or a day or a couple of days before shooting, but especially with a sequence like that, that riot scene. And Dan Skeen, our sun coordinator, I'm like, Dan, what can we do? What's possible? This amount of time, he's like, well, I can throw a guy over this. We can have 20 people running. We have 20 stunt people, 200 extras. You know, we're outside that night with 600 extras. There's no crowd replication. There's nothing. It's all shot live. And we had to do the digital 
glass cracking, and then we really smashed the glass and dropped it on them with candy glass. And then we did some wire removal, but that was stunts and practical effects and special makeup effects, and then paint out for some, some CGI for certain things. But you know, we, we really we really did it when you were in that store, and then we got multiple cameras. I was like, I, I like to shoot with one camera. I like to be very precise, and I think that two cameras turns into television. The, what I mean by that is, if you're lighting an actor for a close-up, the camera needs to be close. Like you can spend, you know, 45 minutes lighting an actor's close-up, but if you have the camera across the room and you're lit, lit for the wide, and you put that camera on a telephoto and you're getting their close-up, the image is going to be flat and their performance is different. I swear to God. And now I understand why people do it. I've had to do that. Sometimes you're outside, you can get away with it. Throw it on an 85, shot looks beautiful, nobody notices. But when you're shooting a close-up with an actor, in my mind, there is no substitute for moving that camera close and taking the time to light the shot properly. You'll see it in their eyes, you'll see it in their face. Now that is your lead actor. And let me tell you something, your audience is gonna feel very differently about your lead character. If you move that camera close, you use the proper lens and you light it properly for a close-up. Now, Ridley Scott will tell you, you can shoot with six cameras. He is a master. He knows how to do it and he knows when to do it. He knows when to go close. I'm not saying this is a hard, fast, and rule. I'm not saying it can't be done or it's bad if you don't do it. I'm just saying for me, in movies like this, when I want that lead, when you have someone like Nell Verlack, who's like a young Julia Roberts, you put the camera close. When you have Patrick Dempsey, you're not lit for a wide shot putting on a telephoto lens. You give him a movie star close up. And when you're editing the movie, those scenes of those two actors talking shot properly is going to have a very different emotional and dramatic effect than if I had just set up a wide shot and just cross shot with two tight lenses. Well, and I love how much stuff you do practically in this movie, too. I mean, I, because I do think, you know, I'm not an anti-digital effects person or anything like that by any means, but I do think that there's something you get. The more stuff you do practically, the less it's going to look like other movies because it's like, you know, like you can't have the happy accidents if you're doing things digitally. I'm curious on a, you know, on a modest budget like this, what are the challenges and what are the rewards of doing your effects practically? Because it looked to me like the, all the, you know, this movie has great kill scenes. I mean, again, that's sort of the thing people are going to be coming to see this for and you really deliver. And doing the gory set pieces practically, what are the advantages and what's tough about it uh, on this kind of schedule? Well, it's terrifying. It's terrifying because if it doesn't go wrong, there's no backup plan. And then you have to ask your financier for more money, which, by the way, we started the movie independently with Spyglass, there was no distributor on board. Uh, Sony came on about a week before shooting. They said, we want it for Thanksgiving. And there was another studio that wanted it as well, but Sony came in with like, great, we're going wide theatrical with it. Okay, great, done. You know, it's fucking terrifying doing the practical effects, but that's why you have Adrian Moreau and his wife, Kathy C, and they're, they're incredible. And Adrian, you know, obviously won the Oscar for The Whale, and we really care about those, those kill scenes. And he's spending, you know, we get everyone to his shop to make the fake heads and the body parts and the smashing butt. You know, we also had Steve Newburn from Applied Artists in Toronto helping us out as well. But there, you're talking about blood tubes and rubber and a hammer that's going to smash it, a real, like, cast iron thing, and it doesn't always work. And sometimes you have to go again, and sometimes you have to rebuild. And so when you're budgeting it, you go, okay, I'm going to do this thing where we rip a body in half. What is the reset time? And how long does it take to set up? 
And are we puppeteering it? We're doing some wire removal. Should we do a safety pass just in case we need like a digital emergency as a backup? But when you're there and it's five in the morning and you're losing the darkness because the light's coming up and you got to chop someone in half, you're like, fuck, this better work. And we have our visual effects guys from Soho Effects there going, okay, this, I'm like, "Mm, the legs didn't drop as fast enough. They're like, we can get that. We can speed that up. Let's just shoot a play here. So I can make little tweaks to it. But, you know, when you're like sticking someone's face against the fridge and you're ripping it off, it's like, is that good? Yeah, let's try it again. It's an hour. And you're standing there. And was there anything else we can shoot? Well, you can, but you're going to have to light it and relight it. You're just like, you just sort of eat it. That's part of the deal. There's one particular gag involving uh, the Mayflower truck that we did it and it didn't work. The blood tubes tangled. So we looked at it and we're like, fuck, what else can we do? So you try and do that stuff early enough that we're like, okay, how do we set it up so we can redo it in a parking lot using smoke? Like we've got the wide exteriors. Like, can we get... You know, those two young girls who I'd worked with before in my show Urban Legend and this short I did Trick or Treat, can they come back and do it? Can we call their parents going, hey, can we spray your daughters and bloods again? The parents are like, oh, yeah, the kids love it. They want to come back. They want to come back. <laughs> so the kids are super into horror and the parents are too. So it's really scary that if it doesn't work, because when it doesn't work, you're like, fuck, can we fix it digitally? Can we redo it? The last night we were shooting a particular gag involving a huge spray of blood. And the day before, I was like, we got to do some tests because I don't want to be there at 4.30 in the morning because we're in a house that's like a glass box. So as soon as that light comes up, you're dead. You can't tent the house. We'll see outside. So we did these tests. And then I was like, okay, let's do it. And it was like, and someone fucked up. And I was like, what the fuck happened? And they're like, well, we tested it with water. I go, why the fuck did you test it with water? We're doing blood. And they're like... Yeah, we fucked up. And of course, I blew a gasket, which is not what you want in the last night. They redid it. And I was like, if this doesn't work, I really don't know what to do because the entire scene is hinging on this one practical gag. And it we had a huge cleanup. And now we're testing it and shooting it in the same time, which is the exact situation I did everything I could to avoid. And it fucking went great. I was like, you better fucking blast it. And the actors just got sprayed with blood and they did not expect it to happen. And there was total shock. And we got it. And we got the scene. But I remember fighting the light to the very end. And it sucked. Like, you don't want to end your set on your shoot on your last night on a really dismal note. But I was like, fuck me, man. I played this one really close to the edge. I will never save a kill for the last night of shooting because it's too damn dangerous if you don't get it because the other ones like that one gag with the truck we were able to it took us four times redoing it and adrian moreau had to set it himself and he's like i know it went wrong because he wasn't there he was on another set and had some people doing it and then he came to set he was like i'm doing this myself and we're gonna ram it and i want it to work and we both look at him but adrian and i just look at each other and we go all right we got it so you know that's what it is that's the name of the game is that there is no substitute for some spraying someone with real blood. When someone gets sprayed in digital blood, you don't feel it. We all know what it's like when, you know, some bully dumps coke on your head or syrup and you're just like stuck and frozen and your shoulders shrug. You're like, ah! There's no, there's no substitute for that feeling. And when you're making a horror movie, you want to know that the actors got put through the ringer. Otherwise, they look like actors that didn't want to get dirty. And that was one of the reasons I had them watch Sorcerer. I was like, look what they went through. 
You know, there's a reason this movie is that powerful all these years later. So, and they were great. They were totally game to go for it. They were just soaked head to toe in blood. And yeah, you feel it. You just feel it differently. Now, certain things you can't do practically. Like there's a glass slice on a neck. I was like, oh, we can do an extension and we can do the appliance and then reveal the appliance. So the neck gash is there. And there, I was like, try adding a spurt of digital blood. It's like three frames, and you go, ooh. You know, we can add like, oh, I wish the blood had pooled a little bit different. It's like, well, we can extend that blood on that head on the ground and actually be slowly pooling. I'm like, okay, good, because sometimes it just doesn't work. But, you know, the effects are good enough. You can get away with it. But I always try to go for everything practical until it's impractical. And then if I have to fix it over with CGI, we do that. Well, and as stressful as it is, it must be so fun for you, you know, because I know, I think we're around the same age. And I mean, I grew up with like Tom Savini movies and there was even, you know, Tom Savini put out a book that had all the yeah, photos of, of how it's he amazing. Did. Yeah, with like We that, all had that book and the, the Dick Smith book too. Exactly. And so it's like for people like us who grew up on those books to be actually on the set playing with that kind of stuff, it must just be a blast. I mean, aside, the, the incredible stress aside. It is a blast. And when it works and the whole audience, but I also love like the little cheap gags, like the corn holders in the ears. You know, anytime I can do a trick, you know, like that knife and the cheerleader landing in the trailer, it was just editing. We just held the frame, had her bounce in the trampoline. She steps off, stick the knife through. It just caught the light, caught the dust perfectly. We ruined a trampoline, which we knew we were going to do. Got it once, and that was it. And I edited it, and people, just the sound and the cut, people lost their minds. So I was like, I want to do something like that again. That's a cheap trick that gets the audience. Like, I have the big elaborate ones and the big, you know, rigs and removals and blood and guts, but what if I can pull something off that I could have done in my basement when I'm 10 years old? And that was the corn holders in the ears. And I thought, the way I'm going to get it is I'm just going to reverse the footage. The oldest trick in the book. And so I had these corn holders with a smiley face, and, you know, the, the, the killer can't even see the corn because the way the fingers are grabbing it, the way you'd really grab it, completely covers up the corn. I'm like, no, it's got to be, like, just on the edge. So... You're going to pull it away, and then we'll reverse the film, and it'll look like you're jamming in. But Jenna Warren, the actor, has to act it in reverse because first she shocked the killers in the mirror, and the thing goes there, and she screams. So she has to go from, like, scream to shock as he pulls out. So everyone's like, is this going to work? And, I, and you know, the studio's looking at me going, is this going to work? I'm like, trust me, trust me. Like, Because this is, like, now, like, a major moment in the movie. And I'm, like, you know, a kid, like, adjusting the, the googly-eyed, corn face and the thing and I'm doing it myself we're like we're rolling the camera and it's a macro lens so no one can move it's got to be I'm like three two one action and then we cut and then I'd reverse it play it in reverse we're like nope didn't work the timing was off can't see the face and let me tell you and we're going into overtime and everyone's like you just have to like be completely numb to it you have to be like that like sociopath party you just shuts it out and goes I don't care I know you all are panicking but you've got to trust me. And then we got it on like take five or take six and everyone jumps. And I was like, we got it. And that's when I can sleep at night because I know with these movies, obviously you want a great drama and great performances and great acting and all of these things that elevate it and make it a classic. But if those scares don't work, you're dead. That's what people are paying for. So it's, it's scary. It is like that, again, that faith-based system where you're just like, trust me, it's going to work. And then it has to, because you have no other choice. Well, to wrap things up, I guess, you know, I think a lot of people are going to go see this movie, and I think it's going to excite them about horror movies and about slasher movies, and they're going to want to go back and watch some of the things that inspired you. And I'm just curious, what what for you are 
some of the most underrated or overlooked slasher movies that people should seek out. Well, here's the thing. You got to understand that The Haunted House is never as scary the second time through. The great thing about horror movies is they will terrify you. But I always see these sort of recap lists of the best of the decade. And I went back, I watched The Ring. It's really not that scary, like as if that's a knock. But they don't understand that you can only judge it by the first time you saw it. Like a horror movie is like a bottle of perfume or cologne that the first time you take the top off and smell it, it's so potent. And then every time it just loses a little bit of its potency. But there's beauty in that because that's where the subtext and the theme, the colors, that's where the filmmaking, the acting comes. The first time you watch it, the blood stains your eyes. That's all you'll see. And that's okay. That's the intent. So going back and rewatching these movies, they're never going to be as scary as when you saw it when you were 11 years old. But there are other things you can really appreciate about them and enjoy about them. Uh, the most overlooked for sure is Mute Witness by Anthony Waller. Amazing film. And you're not guessing who the killer is, but the cat and mouse of this lead actor who's always one step of the, ahead of the killer. It's a team of killers. And then there are her and her, the back and forth, it's sublime. The first 45 minutes of that movie is about as perfect you're going to see. And rewatching it, I used to not like the back half of the film, but now I just love it all the way through, right up to the end, to the last shot. It's a terrific, terrific film. Pieces by Juan Piquet Simon. It's just such a batshit crazy bonkers movie with Edmund Purdom. Uh, Christopher George and Linda Day George is one of my favorite on-screen duos, those two. It's a, it basically delivers in the promise of what Texas Chainsaw Massacre was. The tagline was, you don't have to go to Texas for a Chainsaw Massacre, and it's exactly what you think it is. Fantastic, fantastic whodunit slasher. Starts with like the kill, and then years later, and the, the, the kills are so over the top, and the acting is just so... It's, it's, it's perfection. It's the most fun you're going to have watching a slasher film putting it on with a group of friends. The Prowler, I love The Prowler. Really good, kind of low-budget, small New England, small-town feel horror movie with a pitchfork killer. When we use a pitchfork sequence, it really felt like The Prowler. Amazing effects by Tom Savini. But for me, the movies that are going to deliver, if you want to watch a movie with a bunch of friends, you put on Mute Witness. It's fantastic. Pieces is totally nuts right up through the end. And Sleepaway Camp. Sleepaway Camp is unmatched. I mean, those those effects, the Robert Hiltzik, the way they did some of these kills in the movie are so great. But it is a movie that delivers on the final frame of the film. And I remember seeing that movie when I was 12 years old and we stood up and screamed and cheered. Another one, Silent Night, Deadly Night, is such a dark movie. There's such a long setup before the killer is set off on his killing spree. And that opening scene with Santa on the side of the road and the old man, the old grandpa at the mental institution, there's so many great classic things. Mother's Day is one of my all-time favorites. A very rough movie, um, but really, really interesting. Written by Warren Light, who's been very active in the WGA strike. Um, really interesting movie about sort of the overflow of pop culture and the sewer and what it does to people. And there's it's a great example of low-budget filmmaking because Charles Kaufman's sister, Susan Kaufman, did the art direction. And they shot in this house, and she painted and spray-painted every room of the house. And in every room, there's always a television on, and they shot fake commercials to always play. It's about these, like, sort of the overflow of the pop culture sewer run amok with this demented mom and her crazy sons. But again, delivers on the final shot of the movie, shot for $150,000 across the lake from where they shot Friday the 13th. So... Those are all, you know, but it's, it's a rough, there's like some brutal stuff in that movie, but the performance, um, you know, by Gary Pollard and, you know, Beatrice Pons, they all took fake names. It was Gary Pollard, Beatrice Pons, and Michael McCleary, uh, who acted in the film, and Tiana Pierce, Nancy Hendrickson, who's in it, teaches at LA 
film school and I've taught her class before. So I'm, I'm a big student of Mother's Day. Uh, but really, Sleepaway Camp, Pieces, Mute Witness, you can't go wrong with those films. April, yeah. April Fool's Day is another fun one. Fred Walton. I really love that movie. Uh, it's a great list. And uh, Thanksgiving is, you know, I just had so much fun with this movie. I loved it so much. And I'm really glad you came to talk with me about it. This has been fantastic. So thanks so much for being here. Eli. My pleasure. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Jim.